from the underground bunker of the Civitas Studio in Raleigh, North Carolina, it's Civitalk with your hosts, Brooke Medina and Ray Nothstein. We're here to connect culture with civics, making it relevant to your daily life. And dare we say, existence at a time where too many are triggered and offended. So, relax. But buckle up and let's wade into the deep end of what's really happening in your old North State. Merry Christmas and welcome to the final edition of Civitalk. If you want us back, just send us lots of fan mail, emails, and maybe we'll have some sort of uh, similarities with the show in the future. But this is the final episode of Civitalk. And Brooke and I are going to be talking about post-holiday lockdowns, a very depressing topic. Um, giving to charity versus government coercion. We'll have some Civitas reflections, and we're going to kick it off with favorite reads of the year. Brooke, how's it going? Hey, Ray. I am doing good, but feeling mighty nostalgic today, knowing that it's the final Civitalk episode. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you and I have been, it seems like we've been doing this a long time. I don't remember exactly how many episodes I've lost track, but I, it may be in the 120s or 130s. At least yeah, this got close to one thirty now. Yeah. And and just for our audience, if you missed last week's episode, uh and so you're wondering why in the world we're saying it's our last episode, it's because we are joining forces with John Locke Foundation. And so the Civitas Institute will fold under into the John Locke Foundation. And so we will all be called John Locke Foundation. We will still have your favorite Civitas products, such as the Civitas Pole. Um, well, except for your other favorite Civitas product, was, which is Civitalk. Um, we are rethinking the podcast landscape. And so more details on what's ahead in terms of podcasts will come out in 2021. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I'm sure there'll be uh, multi levels and layers of podcasting and some different options over there. So be sure to check that out. If you're a fan of Civitalk, I'm, I'm sure in some capacity, Brooke and I will be involved in, in some way, but uh, let's kick it off literature. You know, this whole idea of being creative, of fantasizing, of imagination and, and Christmas, I think go together. So I'd like to hear from you, Brooke, some of your top reads of 2020 and sort of a, a weird year for all of us. Yes, yes, it, it was. And for as much as I thought that, you know, being home a little bit more regularly would be conducive to me reading more, it has not panned out that way for me personally. And in a way, I feel that's a shame. My mom asked me, you know, Brookie, what do you want for Christmas this year? And I said, I just want a few afternoons alone to myself where I can read. Essentially, I just want a reading sabbatical. I have so many books that I need to catch up on, not because I feel like I have to, but because I genuinely want to. But it, it, it's almost like, and I'm sure many of our listeners and you, Ray, can identify with this when you have kids at home and there's just so many and other work responsibilities. It's very difficult to do that unless you're super intentional about setting aside that reading time. Um, but even so, there were a couple of books that really stood out to me this year. One was our book club book, which was Just Mercy. And um, so that one I listened, I, I've done a lot of audiobooks this year. And that one was just really good in terms of just giving me a different perspective on the death penalty uh, as far as how it plays out in the United States, not necessarily my ethical stance on the death penalty, because I do believe there is a place for capital punishment. 
Um, but it, it did help me uh, develop a, a healthier skepticism of, uh, of how that's carried out in some cases. So um, that's one. And then I'll let you share one and then I'll go back and share one and you share another one. Does that sound good? Well, yeah, one that I just finished actually yesterday is called Hard Hat Riot. And, and I totally agree with you. It is much harder to read when you have a family and a growing family and uh, particularly young kids. I used to be uh, much more of a voracious reader than I even am now. And uh, I, I just remember in um, seminary, like you'd get, you'd have a thousand pages of reading a week and I would breeze through it and I'd be reading all this other stuff. And I would try to work that into my assignments as well. And uh, there's no way I could ever do that now. But I just finished a book and I'm reviewing it for a, uh, a publication. It'll be out next year. It's Hard Hat Riot. And it's about the uh, blue white blue collar riots in New York City against the, the uh, anti-Vietnam protesters, Vietnam War protesters. And many of the hard hats were against the war too, but they were upset about uh, protesters running the country down, burning the flag. They were upset about uh, them waving Vietnamese flags, North Vietnamese flags and things like that. And the book is really about, it's relevant to today, Brooke, because it's really about the realignment of the Republican Party, where white working class Americans started moving from the FDR, New Deal Democrats over to the Republican Party. And this really started to occur for the first time under Nixon, it accelerated uh, again under Reagan. It, they became disillusioned with people like George H.W. Bush, George W. Bush, and the other nominees like Romney and um, McCain. And of course, Trump came along and figured this formula out. He goes, you know, the, the Republican Party and the Democratic Party are both ignoring uh, blue collar white workers, especially in America's heartland, and was able to use that to capitalize on his own uh, elective victory. So it's just an interesting, it's a very balanced book. I mean, you have people like uh, James Carville, who was a famous uh, political consultant for Bill Clinton and Michael Barone. Many listeners will uh, recognize Michael Barone too. Um, you know, they both endorse the book. That's the person on the right, the person on the left. So it's a very balanced book, but it looks at um, realignment, which is very, uh, a big part of our politics today. And so, um, just a fascinating book, Brooke. Uh, yeah, that, I, good good political history, but also um, it just gives really insights on, you know, how we're at this place that we're at now politically, you know, mm -hmm. at the national level. I and I think that's something worthwhile for us to consider, and something that, you know, many uh, many pundits have, you know continued their thoughts on this uh, after the election, you know, they just have started to pour forth as to how the electorate is changing. I think one of the big upsets was uh, was down in Miami-Dade County. Big upset for progressives, that is, uh, when Trump took it. And, um, you know, it's causing people to rethink uh, the working class voters that Democrats have historically um, relied relied upon in the Rust Belt area, as well as a number of minorities, uh, but in particular Hispanics. 
And so I, I've been interested in this. I keep looking up. Um, I think it's the AP VoteCast is is the resource I've been using. It's from the Associated Press, but it just breaks down by demographics, who's voting for who. And so often we hear about, for example, the Trump female problem, but we don't hear as much about the Biden male problem. And uh, so, and then the Biden Christian problem, Biden is scoring way lower among Christians, way lower among males. And so anyways, uh, the election's over, but I think there's a lot of lessons to keep learning. So that sounds like a fascinating read. Um, I would just add one more book to my uh, to my list of ones that I would at least recommend to the audience. And this one did me so much good this year. I, I needed to hear it. It was called Lead Yourself First. And it was uh, it, it's a leadership book, but it's just really uh, cron- or profiling several American leaders throughout history who used the practice of solitude to be able to get in touch with their intuition, essentially, or their their gut, and be able to make critical leadership decisions. Um, so, for example, it covered like Eisenhower, Churchill, which obviously is not American, but uh, Churchill and, uh, and whew, what, Jane... What's her name now? Jane, the one that talked to the monkeys. Jane Goodall. Jane Goodall. Jane Goodall. <laughs> Jane the monkey talker. Uh, yeah. So anyways, there were just some really, really good examples. Rosa Parks. Uh, but it was just talking about the importance of having solitude. And uh, like we already said, that's difficult when you have children in your home and, and you can't just, you know, hide away. But you can, I, I go on runs, for example, or we'll just go work out. And that's my time of solitude. And that's been really, really helpful for me and just kind of staying mentally and emotionally healthy during this year. Yeah, Jane Goodall, uh, she's like in her mid or late 80s and is still alive. She's still with us. Uh, fascinating woman. Yeah. Another yeah. book, um, just from a historical perspective, kind of from the same time period that I read uh, and really was, I mean, the setting is over in Vietnam, is a book called Quezon Remembered by Michael Archer. Uh, that was the subtitle. The, the actual title is A Patch of Ground. Quezon remembered. And it's just really interesting to me. Primarily, he was a Marine and it's from the lens of the sacrifice at the the base, the outpost called Quezon, where they were basically, it was a kind of an Alamo type situation where the North Vietnamese had them surrounded. And uh, he just tells funny stories. He's a great writer. And uh, he was a young Marine. I think he went into writing later. But uh, his ability to storytell, but also to talk about sacrifice, talk about some of the stupidity that happened over in Vietnam with some of the officers and generals who were making dumb decisions, but also to contextualize his own experience and say, there was a lot of bad that went on on here, but there's a lot of things I learned uh, about myself and a lot of things I learned about um, working together in a team environment. So that was another good book. And it's worth, if you like military history, someone would like, would like to read that. It's, it's just very interesting. Mm-hmm. Okay, good. Yeah, you uh, you're always good for a good history book recommendation. I appreciate that. So, anyone keep in touch with Ray if you ever have questions or recommendation needs on that front. Okay, let's uh, just briefly discuss um, lockdowns because uh, we we've kind of uh. we've kind of been in a, a middling situation uh, where Cooper added some restrictions, some new mass mandates. Um, I don't think there were too many um, changes to the restaurant environment, um, but I don't remember exactly what the situation was with bars, if that changed. 
But, um, you know, where are we headed? Because there's, you know, rumors that maybe we're going to be headed to more aggressive lockdowns again after the holidays and that the governor is kind of keeping things somewhat status quo through the Christmas season and that that could change maybe as, as quick as the 26th. Yeah, well, I mean, we we already know we, we're under a 10 p.m. curfew, which extends over the holidays, including New Year's. And so there's that component. And we're already also seeing preparations made for people to have to continue to mask. Now, don't don't go saying that Brooke said that there's going to be an enforced mandate if you're listening to this. I didn't I'm say totally there is. Say I'm totally going to say that. After the, vaccines, <laughs> after the vaccines are rolled out, which they're just starting to, but uh, there have been indications that suggest that there could be mask mandates that continue even after the vaccines are kind of mainstreamed. And so my hope is that's not the case. Um, but that's another thing we need to be we need to figure out. But thankfully, there are plenty of people on an I foresee a number of lawsuits coming out that are really going to challenge the governor's emergency powers on this front. He needs to be challenged. And so I think that's going to be the case. And we know that John Sanders at John Locke Foundation, uh, our soon to be colleague, he has been writing and looking into Cooper's mask mandates and his other executive order mandates and researching the studies that Governor Cooper cites as backing for his rationale behind these mandates. And John Sanders is like lambasting these studies because these studies are inconsistent, largely inconsistent with whatever Cooper is is peddling out there. So, um, you know, I say all that to say, do your homework out there. Don't take these studies for uh, at face value. Yeah, um, John has really covered that really well. And um, you're right. I mean, because there really is so much disagreement. Uh, if you read the Barrington Declaration or just different stuff from immunologists, I mean, that's the thing that's been frustrating to me is that, you know, people cite this scientist or this study when there's so many studies that contradict it or there's just different interpretations of that study, not even that that study is uh, – being interpreted the right way. So that's kind of been a frustrating thing to me. And you go out and read and, and you educate yourself. That's really the best position to be in. And I think, you know, getting back to this thing we've talked about continually is I think we got to treat citizens like adults and uh, treat citizens in a manner that they can make the best decisions to keep their families safe, that they can make decisions that are smart, that are proactive, but also doesn't destroy their livelihood, right? That's what um, this is ultimately all about. And sometimes and we've written about this at Civitas, and of course, this has been a continual theme at Locke as well. But you know, we, you don't want the intended policies or the intended shutdowns to be worse than the actual disease, and and that's something we have to weigh yeah. and consider continually, right? I mean, that's that's critical if you're going to you know ask people to give up their livelihoods, to give up their their businesses, to give up their uh, way of life to provide for their family. I mean, I just saw a story that you know there's going to be potentially hundreds of thousands of evictions across North Carolina. But, you know, that's a that's a consequence, um, at least a large number of those. A huge chunk is a consequence of some of these policies. So, uh, you know, and, and government needs to be accountable on these things. And, and if they're not accountable, and if they just throw up their hands and say, science, 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 uh, but the science is not in agreement in certain areas. Exactly. Then, 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 <laughs> then citizens are incumbent upon themselves to ask questions, to petition their lawmakers, to put more pressure on the General Assembly, to ask to, to you know, if, if the governor is not responsive, 
put more pressure on the General Assembly and say, hey, you need to get after this governor more. You need to call him on the carpet more. You need to hold hearings. You need to do this and that and not just say, oh, well, it's just the way it is, right? Right. Yeah, no, exactly. We get the kind of government that we are willing to tolerate or put up with. And so we as a citizenry really do have to put our foot down. And I do see people becoming more engaged. Now, this here's the key, though. We can get upset about these things, but this is where I think leadership is very, very important. And I'm talking about leadership outside of government um, as well as within government. But people are going to get angry. And if they haven't been given a direction or a way in which to articulate their anger that is healthy or productive, they're, you're going to see the vitriol that we've been witness, we've witnessed for years now on social media, for example. And so the key is to have good leadership or people that just have a strong enough center and uh, enough whereabouts and wherewithal that they are are directing their anger properly. I think that that's where you really see change. Yes, like, right. To have constructive right. anger, not just lash out. I just jump on social media and lash out. Maybe there's a time and place for that, but that can't sure, be the only, yeah. that can't be the only thing that you do. And mm-hmm. uh, you know, we should remember. You know, if you're a Christian, you read the Bible. You know, you're supposed to obey the governmental authorities. But in America, we also are the masters of the government. So mm-hmm. we are an essential the government too. I mean, we are really the the leadership that we have ultimately are our servants. So we have a duty to question them. We have a duty and and we can certainly throw them out of office at election time, but we also have a duty to question them, to follow up, to be diligent in our own research and uh, ask, just ask tons of questions. And, you know, we've been talking about this for a long time, Brooke. I wonder, it's just going to be interesting if we look back five, 10 years from now and just see so many of the changes the positives, the negatives. Um, it, it's really transforming society. And I, my hope in this, all of this is that we just don't cede more power to government because it becomes convenient, or we cede more power to government because we're lazy in our uh, duties as, citizen, as a citizen. Right. Yeah. And I mean, that that is the easy way out for a lot of people, but also this actually segues into what we should discuss next. Uh, some people see more power to the government because they believe that there is this sort of collective charity element to government that is more potent and powerful than giving to maybe local charities. And I know you uh, are right. You have written a piece that's going live soon on the Carolina Journal. It's, up, now, it's, up, it's up now, Carolina Journal. Okay. All right. And that's it's regarding giving to charity versus government coercion. And I think we should camp out a little bit on this because I believe some people just really have a misguided understanding of what giving to charity um, versus giving their taxes and calling for more social programs uh, really is. Yeah, it prompted me to write this. Um, I I tied it to Christmas because it's around Christmas time. But what really prompted me to write this, and I know a lot of listeners out there know this, but sometimes you see people like Jeff Bezos, uh, you see Bill Gates, uh, Warren Buffett. They get on TV or they write an op-ed and they say, we got to give more taxes because we got to help the poor. And we're all, I'm, I'm all for helping the poor. That's uh, one of the important things uh, that we can do as Americans, as citizens, as a, a person of faith is to help the poor. But who's stopping them? You know, they want to make it where it's compulsion. They want to make it where you're forced to pay more taxes. 
in the effort to help the poor. And, and really my overall point in the piece was, is you can't replicate compassion through through government bureaucracies and creating an entrenched bureaucracy. You can't replicate uh, real uh, giving, which reflects the Christmas season, which reflects mm-hmm. the gospel narrative of a gift that is freely received. You can't replicate that at the government level. And you see the war on poverty. I mean, that has been a huge disaster from a budgetary um, standpoint, but also just from a standpoint of effectiveness. We have not eradicated poverty in this nation. There's been some improvements in some areas, but we spent trillions and trillions of dollars and done very little uh, to to change people's lives. And I think really an underlying point of what I was trying to say is that in, take, in trying to remove, and we see all this today, right? People want to make uh, government the caretaker over all things. You even have religious leaders who say this. I mean, you, we, all of us know about Reverend William Barber, right? He sanctifies any government largesse and says it's compassionate and says it's the biblical thing to do. But really, I mean, that's taking the onus off of us and our mandate to go out and help people and to do it in a way that's voluntary, right? So there's there's liberty in, in free association. There's liberty in voluntary giving that, that unlike that you have with government coercion. And there's greater effectiveness too, Brooke. I mean, you're you're doing more and you're empowered. And really the story, I think one of the things that really prompted me to write this piece, and I included it on a blog at uh, nccivitas.org, not in the Carolina Journal piece, but didn't have room for that. But um, Kelly went down to the courthouse uh, near where we live just for some business. And she picked up one of the Angel Tree kids. And it was about the same age as our uh, James, our three-year-old. And um, it was for a, a boy. I won't give his name. But it was for a boy who was a foster child, who was a foster child. And so we decided to go out and buy some gifts. And we told our three-year-old about that. We wanted to introduce him to giving. But also, because he's the same age, he would know what kind of gifts he wants. They, they both had an interest in Paw Patrol. I know Paw Patrol is triggering now because there's law enforcement figures. But... Uh, Ray, that was so canceled. <laughs> so I don't know if we have to delete that, but uh, I'll, no, let Brooke, no. I'll let Brooke make We're that. We need our producer to edit that out. <laughs> <laughs> but anyways, so we told him that we're going to go give. And, uh, you know, we, we explained to him in an in a age-appropriate way that there's some families that just don't have enough to buy presents. And we're going to help this boy out. And... Um, I was almost choking up, but my son, it clicked in him. He understood that that someone was in need. And he's got this giant, well, not giant, small piggy bank, but he's got a lot of coins in it. The first thing he did was run for that piggy bank. Hmm. Um, and he's so prideful about how many coins he has in it, but he was willing to give it all up. And, of course, we paid for the presents. They weren't that expensive. But he was willing to give up his piggy bank for this kid at three years old. Hmm. That's beautiful. And it teaches us, you know, kids have a way because I'm not always a generous person. I, I sometimes want to hoard cash and hoard investments. And you have shared your Reese's with me, though, right? Yes, I <laughs> and will, I gave you, I, I, I gave you a, 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 a McFish coupon too, Brooke. Let's not, <laughs> let's not let that be slighted. No, I, I valued it. Right, but I mean. Uh, he was willing to give up everything so this boy could have a good Christmas. Yeah, and uh, that's that's the heart we should have. And government can't replicate that. It can't it can't make us want to give. That's why these C- these rich CEOs on the left love to go on TV. And, but they can give whatever they want, but they yeah. want to compel everybody else to give. 
and that's that's just not the American way. That's not the 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 system of charity that has has really been our cultural institutions and our cultural fabric from from our founding. I mean, uh, and, and before that, uh, really through the whole Christian tradition. I mean, we are a generous and compassionate people. But yeah. uh, and, and look at and look at the debt too, and look at the look at the the deficit and debt and and where trying to spend our way to prosperity is leading to us. And it creates a culture of entitlement. It creates a culture where people say, you know, if if you receive a gift freely, um, it, it changes your life, I think. But if you're just getting in, entitlements through the government, and, and I'm not bashing every government program, that's not the point. But if you're just getting entitlements, you're not really grateful. You're entitled. Yeah. Well, and it, um, yeah, it, it just, it does not honor the dignity. There's so much to say about what you just said there, like all of that. And, um, and that beautiful story of your son, I think just really captures what, what it means to be a generous human at the most, just at the most childlike, innocent level. Um, but you know, there is this element that, you know, harms both the taxpayer and I would say the entitlement recipients. And again, do not misunderstand that we're we're lumping all entitlement programs, using air quotes here, in with this. But there's this element where it harms the dignity of the individual that's receiving them if they are never allowed to to feel as if they are able to create or contribute or innovate. And there is a, it, it disincentivizes them from receiving the satisfaction of that. And there are some people that, I mean, I've worked in the nonprofit world uh, for a long time when I was younger, uh, especially among those that were battling poverty. And they were, they were not a monolithic group. There were some that were content to just receive government ha handouts. They did not mind that. But there were others where it was a very, you, you saw the dejection in their face. They did not want to receive that kind of help. They needed it and they needed charities to help and come alongside of them. Um, but that wasn't where they wanted to stay because it was a dignity issue. And then we also think about coercion and coerced giving uh, on behalf from the government and how that does harm to the taxpayers who could actually be utilizing that same amount of funding to invest in a local community oriented program that probably, you know, gets a, a significantly higher return on investment than a government program that's bloated with bureaucracy and red tape. Yeah, absolutely. And kind of your words remind me of, uh, I don't know if you've ever seen this movie. It's a book. Uh, I think it was Jeremy Schapp who wrote the book. I read the book and watched the movie, but Cinderella Man about a boxer in the depression, Great Depression, Jimmy Braddock. Uh, Irish boxer from New Jersey who um, lost his home during the depression. He got injured uh, and couldn't box anymore, lost his home, uh, tried to piece work together. I think his family was split apart for a time. Um, he, he, uh, he had to go on public assistance and um, he, he somehow he got back in the ring. I don't know if his hand fully healed, but he was able to box again. He became the heavyweight champion of the world. And Joe Lewis called him the greatest fighter he ever fought. And uh, he paid back all his public assistance because, like you said, it was a dignity issue um, and, and people were shocked. And it was this this great story because he actually paid back the public. You know, who who would do that today? Right. But um, and it, it was uh, I think it was just a, a character issue for him, too. 
But it says, you know, it says something about, I think, the, the fabric of, of so many Americans. And, um, you know, that's not where they want to be. That's, that's not right. where well, they want to be. And let me just say really quickly one more story before we move on. Um, but my husband, he's just been such an example to me on this front, just as, I mean, he grew, he grew up the son of an immigrant. His uh, mother was a, a teen mom and didn't marry her, his dad until a little bit later. Their marriage broke up. He grew up in the projects in Brooklyn and um, they they were on welfare. They didn't have much of anything. He remembers Christmases where they just, I mean, he would maybe get one little thing if that, but it just, you know, they struggled. And just seeing how generous he is and he loves, he is the best gift giver. And thankfully uh, he was able to break that sort of generational poverty that was in his family, or I wouldn't call it generational poverty because his father was an immigrant from Ecuador and they were well off over there, relatively speaking. Um, but there was that, it could have been easily falling into a generational cycle of poverty. Um, but he was able to work diligently, work hard, serve this country and just is just so generous. And I just, to me, I just even look no further than across the room at my husband and I'm just so inspired and encouraged uh, by that American entrepreneurial and generous spirit. Yeah, your husband, James, is a great guy. I mean, if anybody's ever met him, he is the kind of guy that just, you know, you want to be friends with, people gravitate towards him because he's so kind and it comes across as genuine and probably yeah. because it is. But um, yeah, I mean, James is a great guy. And if you ha if anybody out there has a chance to get to know him, they definitely should get to know him. Yes. And tell him how amazing his wife is and that you, you should give her even more Christmas gifts than he already did. That I had a great idea for a business. Rent a friend. If you need a friend for a party, James is the kind of guy that you would want to rent because he's so cool. Yeah, I mean, he, he probably has too high of integrity to take your money to be your friend. But if there was a program like that or, or some kind of business, he would be good at that because, you know, you would have oh, – awesome. <laughs> Oh, great. I love it. I love it. Well, hey, Ray, let's uh, let's close out this final episode uh, with just maybe just a reflection or a story or something, anything you want to share related to your time at Civitas. Well, yeah, it's interesting because, um, I mean, there's so much I could share, but I'll tell one little story. Uh, I was working up at the Acton Institute, and it was actually during Acton University, and I can't remember if it came over email. Well, I knew some people in North Carolina, and I was uh, talking to a few folks in North Carolina, not anybody at Civitas, but I get this, um, uh, maybe it was like a Twitter inbox or something from Francis at Civitas. He's like, how would you like to come down here and interview for a job? And uh, I did. I came down and interviewed. This was, uh, gosh, 20, 2010, 2011-ish, and uh, Francis was very kind to me. Took me to lunch. We talked. Um, I didn't really want to leave the Acton Institute, but I kind of was looking at a few different things. I ended up staying there like four or five more years, but we both decided that uh, it wasn't necessarily the, the right time. But it's just kind of funny how life works because I was up at Acton for a long time. Um, I'd moved back down to Mississippi for a time. Uh, my wife was finishing up law school in Chicago. It was all messed up. I mean, everything was all over the place. Um, I was doing various, uh, working for an organization, uh, doing some freelance stuff on the side, working 
here. They are still working on some projects with Acton. And um, my wife finished up law school. We moved to North Carolina, worked out a publication for a while. And then Francis sends me another message. And uh, that's kind of how I ended up at, at Civitas. And uh, it's just kind of weird how life works out that way. Um, yeah. So, you know, it's just yeah. kind of a interesting, interesting, uh, in- interesting story, I guess. But it's, it's just, it just reminds you sometimes you kind of, you end up in places you, you don't expect. And, and sometimes you boomerang around somewhere that you've, you know, you've, you've experienced before. Yeah. Well, it reminds me of that Bible verse that there's a season and a time for everything. And um, just remembering, you know, it, it may have seemed, you know, those years before it acted and that that was the season to make that transition. And then, uh, and then it, it became clear that wasn't the case, but yet that was a touch point that you had that later, so it, kind of, it had sown the seeds for a later, a later harvest on that, which I think is pretty neat. Um, and, and even to that point regarding seasons, that's kind of uh, where I want to start off with my quick Civitas reflection though. And I hope this is encouraging to someone just because um, my career path has definitely not been traditional uh, traditional in, in one way. Uh, so I, I worked in the nonprofit world when I was younger, but I got married pretty young and had my- You were like a child bride, right? <laughs> I, mean, I think you, were, you fit into that category. I got married two weeks after I turned 19. So wow. yes, kind of. And, and now in modern days, since most yeah. people don't get married till quite that a was, That was a joke, by the way. I wasn't- <laughs> I, Yes, we, that was a joke for the record. I was 19, so I was technically legal. Um, and then we started having kids right away. And so I was really, really torn because I am someone that is- I'm a pretty driven person. If you follow the Enneagrams, I'm an Enneagram type three, like Ray's wife. And, um, and if you look at her, where she's at in her career, she's very, very successful. And it's just, we're driven people in that, in that respect, I would say. Um, and so I decided though, that I was going to stay home with my kids. I just felt very strongly about that. My husband was in the military. I didn't, I hadn't done any college yet. And so, um, had four kids, stayed at home for 14 years with them, finished up my degree, didn't even graduate from college until 2018. And um, and then I, my husband finally was about to retire. And so we decided it was time for me to go back to work. And Civitas gave me a chance. They uh, let me in. I came on as an intern, probably the oldest intern they had ever had. And, uh, you know, I worked hard to prove myself because I knew I had to overcome a lot of hurdles because I was so far behind vocationally than other people. But I'll tell you what, I I worked hard, but also it, it was a lesson for me in humility and in just recognizing that even at my age, I could learn from people a decade younger than me. And I just needed to be humble about that. And so it did a lot for me internally. And, um, but also it, they gave me confidence. So because they actually trusted me to handle things like their social media account and, uh, and stuff like that. So I'm really grateful. Yeah. It's, it's good to have a a spirit of gratitude because even in like, you know, uh, one thing that bothers me, and there's a lot of people like this. There's a lot of people not like this. So I'm not judging anybody um, in, or specifically, but when people feel like they're entitled to a job sometimes, I've never felt that way because I've lost a job before. It happened to me in my life. I've never had an attitude 
that I was ever entitled to a job or that I was ever so important that I was, you know, I had to be in this mm-hmm. position or that position. I've never acted like I was entitled to something in, in terms of, you know, I, I may say I have a lot of skills in these areas or I can write well or I can do this or I can do that um, or I can speak well or I can say this, but I've never thought that um, I'm better than anybody or that I'm entitled. Um, there's always someone more talented than you are. There's always someone who's a harder worker than you are somewhere down the, the line. And so uh, I think the, the kind of the entitlement attitude is the biggest turnoff for me. And uh, I know it is for a lot of people and your attitude is a good one. Sometimes you have to humble yourself. And, uh, and I've had to do that multiple times working. I had to humble myself and uh, yeah. it, it builds character. It does. It does build character. And uh, yeah, so whether, you know, you're, uh, you feel like you're at the top of your game this year in 2020, or whether you feel like you've been really brought low, maybe you've lost your job or um, didn't get that promotion or whatever it was, uh, there, there is a season for everything. And really, comparison can be the thief of joy. And so it's really important to do our work diligently. Um, love our families diligently, invest in our communities diligently. And I think that's that's what I want to leave everyone with um, on my front is just, you know, love your neighbor well. Uh, we're, we're all trying to do the best we can out here. And, um, and we're just so grateful that you guys have taken the time to listen to us over these months and, and join us in some of these conversations. Yes. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for all the listens. Thanks for all the support. And uh, we hope everybody has a Merry Christmas and a wonderful 2021 that surpasses uh, so many of the lows of 2020. Absolutely. You all take care. God bless and Godspeed.